How are we doing today? Excellent, excellent. Uh, so we are going to continue in the books of Thessalonians. We just finished 1 Thessalonians last week. This week we're on to 2 Thessalonians. But as we start, we're going to remind ourselves of the gospel presentation. We're going to remind ourselves of the cold fingers juggling green reindeer, which represents the message of creation, the message of the fall, the message of God's judgment, the message of the cross or grace, the coming of Christ, and the response that we're called to um, ask people, do you believe this? So cold fingers juggling green reindeers. And I want, by the end of, I don't know, maybe by Christmas time, for us to know this sequence of communicating God's truth so well that at any time, at any moment, we can ask each other, how do you present the gospel? What needs to be there? We need to have the creation story, the fall story, God's justice, the grace, obviously the cross, and the response. I want that to be second nature for us because that is how God grows a church, through the communication of the gospel to the lost. Uh, but we're starting 2 Thessalonians, which is just the next page or the next swipe over for you. And the time difference between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is probably less than a year. So Paul writes this letter to them in 1 Thessalonians, has some updates, has some more information, probably has questions coming back from them. And so he writes 2 Thessalonians very quickly afterwards, probably no more than a year, maybe two years at the most. And he starts out here with a grand statement, as he does for every introduction, every letter that he starts, in the first two verses of chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, he says, To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He clearly identifies the church's relationship with God, God the Father and His Lord Jesus Christ. He clearly identifies it as a Christian group of individuals in a Christian church that have two things going for them. The first thing going for them is this idea of grace. And if you remember back from, I think it was earlier this year, we talked about grace, defining it as God's uh, unmerited love and favor. God's unmerited love and favor. So we are recipients of grace. We don't earn grace. Uh, God doesn't dispense grace based on an honor system or a merit system. It is all given freely. It is full, free, and complete love and compassion in this thing called grace. And so Paul identifies this church as a church of grace. He also identifies this as a church of peace. Grace and peace, these two salutations, these two desires that Paul has for people. And I think this idea of peace is clearly seen when Jesus is talking to his disciples in John chapter 14 and where he says, peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace is one of those fleeting, sometimes it's an emotion, Sometimes it's a state of mind. Sometimes it's a, an ending of hostility that there is now peace between enemies. But Jesus says, and Paul says, let's not be mistaken here. It's not the kind of peace that the world gives. 
It's not this temporary peace, and it's not just an ending of hostilities. When God says he is at peace with us and he wants peace with us, he's talking about not just the ending of hostilities, but the establishment of a relationship that is building and growing and established and and fruitful. So it's not just the ending of war, but it's the establishment of a relationship. And so God says there's a relationship here between that peace and how you are to feel. And he says, don't let your hearts, first of all, be troubled. See, God knows, Jesus knows that living in this world, there are a lot of things that can trouble us. There are a lot of things that can worry us. And Jesus has already talked extensively about how worry and believing in God are not compatible. You cannot live a life of dreading the phone call, dreading the next day, dreading the next moment, dreading the next conversation. You can't live like that as a believer because you have God's peace that surrounds you and indwells you. It does not matter what the world throws at you. It does not matter what circumstance you face. It doesn't matter what future you don't know. It doesn't matter because you are God's. Well, (laughs) you are God's, possessively God's. You're not gods, you know what I mean, but that really sounded for a second like I need to correct this immediately. You are in God's hands. You are God's possession. You are totally safe, even when death comes to you. You are totally safe because you are his, and he protects his children to eternity. And he tells us, not only should we not be worried, he says, this peace that I give you, you also don't have to be troubled. You don't have to be afraid. Can you imagine what our culture would be like, what our society would be like, what the newscast would be like if there was no fear, if we didn't have fear about what might happen? Granted, it may happen. It could be. But living with the fear of it might happen freezes you. It freezes you from loving, serving, being compassionate, forgiving, and doing your service and duty that God says is required of all of us. So Jesus says, the peace I give you, you're not going to have troubles, and you're not going to be afraid. Two very important and, I would say, very applicable, necessary things for us today. Regardless of what's going out in the world, we need God's peace, and we need His grace. And Paul says, as a church, this identifies you. Our Lord and Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the heads of the church, you are at peace and you are filled with grace. And he continues on in the next two verses, verses uh, 3 and 4, sort of almost boasting about this church. And I I want you to think in terms of, can this be said of us? Can this be said of us? Can this be said of the church in America? Can this be said of the church in this day and age? Can this be said of Calvary? Can this be said of you? He says, we ought to always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. 
Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Paul is a realist. He knows that this church in Thessaloniki, the, the, the wave of persecution is heavily upon them. It would have been, this would have been around 51, maybe 52 A.D., so very mid-century of that first century of the church, and the wave of persecution from Rome is starting to find its place. And in less than 10 years, Paul's arrested, he's in prison, and the persecution of Christians are in full swing. They're being fed to the lions and being lit on fire in order to give light to the roads to Rome. And this church is starting to face some of that in their culture. They're being ostracized by the leadership of the city, and they are being persecuted. And Paul knows this, but he says, this is even more important than what you're going through, how you're facing it. And look at how they're facing it. Look at how he describes it. He talks about giving thanks and prayers to his brothers and sisters because your faith is growing more and more. Instead of looking at all this and saying, I wonder if there really is a God out there, if he's letting us go through all this. No. Instead of that human, unsaved response, their response is, I love God and God loves me. That truth that... The Bible tells me that Jesus loves me, this I know, which is an awesome truth. They're living it, and they're saying, it's mine. And their faith is growing because of it. And not only is their faith growing, this intangible relationship and trust in God, but something very tangible happens because their faith is growing. It says in that verse 3, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. So in light of all of these challenges and difficulties that you face, in light of all of that, as a church, they are known and seen as growing in their faith and growing in their love towards one another. What a beautiful, amazing testimony that Paul is saying, this is what I hear about you guys. I hear that you are loving on one another, that you are giving of yourselves to one another. That love is clear and apparent and alive and increasing. And he says, therefore, in that verse 4, among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. He doesn't deny the persecutions. He doesn't deny the trials. He doesn't deny that they're going through something that really is horrific. Their life, their actual life is on the line withstanding and acknowledging Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he sees in them perseverance. Not a denial of reality, but taking reality and saying, it's not going to rule how I love and how I believe in God. And how quickly people change based on their circumstances. Based on a circumstance, you may change a friendship with someone. They may do something wrong or you don't like, and then you end a friendship with them. You don't like them, and so you sit on the other side. You don't like them, so you avoid them in a store. And we make decisions all the time based on how something happens to us and how we respond. And Paul says, but you haven't done that. As God's people, in fact, you've done the opposite. You've embraced the trials and the endurance, the tribulations that you're facing, and you're enduring through them, and your faith and your love is growing more and more. And we see it. We tell others that is how you respond 
to trials and tribulations and frustrations in your life. You grow in your faith and you grow in your love. Now he's mentioned trials, tribulations, the struggles that they're facing, and they were externally pressured on them. The government was pressuring them, the temples were pressuring them, everybody was pressuring them to change and acknowledge that Caesar, the emperor, was the supreme God. Even though you want your God Jesus, you can have Jesus, but you also have to have the emperor. And as a Christian, you can't serve two gods. There's only one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit that has been given to us to lead us in all truth and knowledge. So we can't add a God to that system. And so I think Paul begins in verse 5 through 10 to talk about something. It can be comforting to us, but it can be also immensely scary to the person who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so I think all these persecutions that this church is facing leads Paul into this very natural conversation with them about the people who are bringing about these persecutions and hardships. And I'm going to read through verse 5 through 10 very quickly, and then we're going to go back and look at some of this in detail. He says, all of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen, notice not today, not right away, not when you want it, but when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and, if that's not bad enough, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified, in his holy people, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This includes you, because you believed on the testimony to you. There's a lot in there. There is a lot, and, and maybe that, just reading that, hits you like a ton of bricks. Like, Paul, we were just talking about grace we were talking about peace. I get that. I love that kind of conversation. You were talking about love and faith right up my alley. Encouraging stuff, Paul. And you did mention that we're facing trials, but that we are enduring it. Great pep talk. And now you brought in everlasting destruction and punishment? But that should be a comfort to his people, a comfort for this reason. As he says, what you're going through is horrible, but God will eventually repay it. God's justice will be done, and it does not have to happen in your lifetime. 
It will happen one day. He's promised it. The day that Jesus returns, all of the wickedness, all of the lies, all of the evil, all of the persecution, all of the ridicule that has been brought against God's people will be stopped. And not only will it stop, but God will dish out the punishment to those who have abused, ridiculed, persecuted, and killed believers. God will do that. It will one day be just. And that's an encouragement to us because they're not going to get away with it. This sense of justice, they're getting away with it. God, you haven't brought about your justice yet. Why are they still getting away with it? He will put an end to it. And look at how he describes that. And we're just going to go through verse 5 through the end there. All of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. There is a sense, and don't get a martyr's complex about this, but there is a sense in which if you are being persecuted by the world because of your testimony and your life in Jesus Christ, then that's a good thing. Because the world, no matter how cultured and civilized it is, hates Christianity. It hates the fact that you stand for truth and you will not compromise. It hates the fact that you will not tell them that good is evil and evil is good. They despise that. And they may tolerate it for a while, but in the end, they despise the fact that you stand for truth. And truth convicts them. And in their heart, we're told in Romans chapter 1 that they purposefully deny God because the truth reveals their sin. So you don't even have to preach sin and judgment to them. You live a life of love and faith, and that brings heavy conviction. You don't have to get on your soapbox and quote Scripture about, thou shalt not do this, 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 and this. You don't have to do any of that. You live a life where you love God. You live a life where you have faith in God. You live a life that has peace and you're surrounded by grace and you extend mercy and tenderness, and they hate that because it deeply convicts them that they're not right with God. And they want to silence that message. Even if you're not speaking, they want to silence the testimony that you have in your life because it brings conviction. Even without words, your presence and your actions bring conviction. And so Paul's able to say in that verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And even in uh, 1 Thessalonians, we saw that we're not to exact revenge on others. God will take care of that. And I know that we want it done now. You hurt me, I want to hurt him back. That's kind of how our sin nature shows itself. How quickly do I want them repaid for what they said about me, what they did to me, how they slight me, how they hurt me, how they persecuted me, how they killed me. We want immediate justice. And God doesn't, God doesn't act on our time frame. Immediate doesn't mean anything to him. He lives outside of time. Everything is present for him. So he says, I'll get around to it. And he tells us in that verse 7, maybe this is exciting, maybe it is not. He's going to give relief to those who are troubled. Okay, so we're taken care of as well, and to us as well. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire and, his, and with his powerful angels. 
So the time that Paul was talking about in 1 Thessalonians when Jesus is returning and the dead in Christ will be raised first and then those who are alive will be caught up with him, I think he's talking about that same time, that moment of Jesus' second coming. God will exact revenge on our behalf. God will finally reveal himself to all the world visibly and audibly in a massive power of force. He's not coming as a gentle lamb to be sacrificed, but Jesus will be coming as a victorious king to silence evil and wickedness and to alleviate the sufferings of his people. And he is coming as a king. He is coming as a warrior. He is coming with his heavenly host as an army to put an end to sin, to death, to suffering, and the devil. We will be excited at that moment. We will be, yes, it is all worth it. Yes, everything I struggled with is worth it because I see my Lord and Savior as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is exacting revenge. We may not be excited about revenge, but we're going to be excited that he's acting on our behalf and that he is putting an end to the things that troubled us. But to the person that does not know Jesus Christ as their lamb and as their king, the story of that day is going to be much different. And it should be a wake-up call. It should be a moment of immediate reflection for every one of you sitting here listening to these words, am I right with God? If you are right with God, then that day in which he's revealed as a mighty king with his blazing sword and the angels surrounding him is going to be a day of great rejoicing. Hallelujah, praise God. Eternity is here, and I am well. And I am better than well. I am good in God's presence. But if you answer that question, I don't know if I'm right with God then let this be the judgment words that awaken your soul today. For he says in the rest of that verse 8, 9, and 10 that he will punish those who do not know God. He's talking about punishing those that don't have a relationship with God, not someone who just simply doesn't know the name of God but has no relationship with him. That's what he means by knowing him, having a relationship with him. So those that don't have a relationship with him, and the only way to the Father is how? Through the Son. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if he is not the lamb that was sacrificed on your behalf on the cross, then you are alienated from God, and he calls you an enemy. And what does the victorious king do to his enemies? He tells us. They will be punished. How? How will they be punished? With everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction. Elsewhere in Scripture, it's, it's called hell. It's called a lake of fire. In fact, the he Greek word is the word Gehenna, which was literally, literally, 
the name for the fire dump outside of Jerusalem that just continually burned and burned and burned. The trash heap. The burning trash heap. And it's described as being immensely, unending, painful. So imagine the worst physical pain you've experienced and you're never going to get relief from it, ever. And in fact, that pain is going to spread not to just a toe, not to an aching tooth, but everywhere. Everywhere that you have a bit of your body, it is going to be tormented with pain. And I have said many times that that's not the most painful aspect of hell. That's not the most painful aspect of the punishment. The most painful aspect comes later in this verse. So they will be punished with everlasting destruction and, secondly, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I've talked about the fact that hell's real punishment outside of that the physical pain is being separated from the comfortable presence of God. Not having a relationship with God where you see His glory and where you fall down and worship, but the presence of God is gone, which means hope's gone. The fact that hell, in hell you are consciously knowing it will never get better. It will never get better. That there is no God going to visit me and save me. That there is no hope. There is no peace. There is no comfort. There is no faith. I am left alone to die in this painful misery forever and ever and ever. See, no matter what we go through, uh, no matter what, you know, the virus, no matter what we go through painfully with cancer, no matter what we go through, a loss of a job or a loss of a relationship, a death of a loved one, no matter what we go through, we always, always convince ourselves, and God is right in this, that it's going to get better tomorrow. It could get better tomorrow. It might get worse tomorrow, but maybe the next day it'll get better. And, you know, maybe the next day it'll get better. Maybe a year from now it'll get better. We always have that moment of, hope. It could get better. It could get better. Hell is void of that hope. There's no hope there. You walk into it and exist as you always will, without relief. So hell has that dual punishment. Not only the physical pain of enduring that, but the fact that God's glory, God's presence is not going to be there as a hope and as a comfort. And he continues and says in verse 10, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all who have believed, this includes you because you have believed the testimony to you. So I'm not going to endure that. You're not going to endure that. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are not going to endure a moment of that painful existence 
of hell. You won't endure it. Instead, he says, and this is a marvelous look into heaven, a marvelous mention of it. He goes, not only is he going to come glorified in his holy people, but we're going to marvel in that group of people. He says very specifically, and to be marveled at among all those who believed. There is going to be this sense of awe and wonder and marvel in this huge group of believers who have transcended up to heaven with God as Jesus Christ is returning. It's going to be a moment of immense discovery about who God is and what He has done and what He is like. It's going to be exciting, good and exciting, the exact opposite of what those in hell are going to experience. They're going to experience pain, suffering, and no marveling whatsoever. Just desperate cries without any hope of having relief. God will repay evil and bring judgment for His people as they stand and represent Christ to a world that hates them. That's a relief. God is going to do what He says. But He's not going to do it on our time scale. He's going to do it on His time scale, and it's going to start when Jesus returns. And He hasn't returned yet. So evil still has an influence here. Evil still has its presence. Evil still can attack and hurt us and demean us and thwart us and frustrate us. It's not for us to take up arms against the evil. It's us to take up faith and love. Faith and love are the tools that God has given us to combat the evil. Jesus combats the evil on our behalf. And then he continues and ends. Uh, great passage in Romans 12. I'd encourage you to read that. All those notes are in your Version Bible app. And so if you're looking for notes for the sermon, all of those are in the Version Bible app. And if you need help getting there, let me know and I'll help you get there because all of our sermon notes announcements are in that Bible app. So a great passage in Romans 12 that talks about this. Uh, great encouragement, but let's move on to our very ending here. The place of prayer in 2 Thessalonians 11 and 12. He says in the last two verses of this chapter, with this in mind, all of these things in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and by his power of protection. You think that maybe Paul would throw in a prayer of, hey, maybe let this cup pass from them. Take them out of harm's way. Take them out of danger. No, he doesn't mention anything like that. In fact, he basically says, as you're going through this, I want your character to be on full display that you love God. And he says it in this way. He goes, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. What is his calling? To be like Jesus. So in all of this, Paul says, I don't want you saved from any of this trial and tribulation. I want you to live like Jesus. So I'm going to pray that you live like Jesus. So I'm going to pray that you would have faith and love and compassion and mercy and tenderness through this. I would pray that you would not have fear and anxiety and worry as you go through this. I pray that you would depend upon God as you go through this. I'm not going to pray that you're saved from it. 
but I'm going to pray that your character shines through it and that your character is as Jesus's. That you are worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition every good deed and goodness and everything prompted by faith. So he does pray that they would have the strength to get through this, that it be God's strength, God's power, God's might, that your deeds and your faith would be evident. And then he ends it by saying in that verse 12, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't pray for their protection. He doesn't pray for them to be delivered. He prays for them to 